Mars with Matt and Hillary. I'm Matt. And I'm Hillary. And this episode is our final episode. Hillary's playing with the microphone. I'm not so much playing with it as... You can just hold it, maybe. I don't know. Like this? Yeah. Just get real with it. (laughs) It's a real, like, Janine Garofalo. Yeah. Um, Yeah. uh, This episode's going to be our last episode about Red Mars as we transition out of red mars and into green mars right right um and uh matt and i have both started rereading green mars and uh it's incredibly exciting it's very fun um i just read like the first 20 pages of it you probably read like a thousand of it or something i read the first thousand pages of a 600 page Uh, book that (laughs) seems impossible like i usually do uh i read the first like 100 pages and then i realized i better stop because i didn't want to be like leaping forward that's a lot that's like more than the a full part. Yeah. Because the first part is only 60 pages yeah. or something like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, maybe at the end we can get to some, we can say some transitional things. Oh, yeah. We definitely will do that. Um, but first, this episode, we what we wanted to do was sort of wrap up our conversation about Red Mars. Think back to, uh, look back to um, sort of the moment of its uh, release and its reception. Um, we uh, I shared with Hillary the New York Times review of it and there are I, I was able to find um through some very i was very lazy about finding uh some uh, original reviews so i really just have like some reviews about the um from uh sort of consumer guides <laughs> about like who this is for um but we're talk a, talk a little bit about the 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 moment of its of its release and its original reception and then kind of go over some of the the bigger themes that um, are kind of wrapping up, but then also will sort of set up Green Mars a little bit more. Um, right? Yeah, that sounds great. That sounds good. Cool. Sounds like a fun episode. I'm stop touching the microphone because it's probably uh, bothering people. Um, <laughs> so uh, one reason mm. that I shared the New York Times review with you, other than the fact that it was one of the only ones I could find. Right. Is that, you know, the New York Times, the gray lady. The gray lady, the paper of record. The paper of record mm-hmm. is uh, exactly what I just said it was. It's the gray lady. It's the paper of record. Right. It's the um, seat of all sort of um, what good neoliberal thinking or something like that. Like uh, uh, it's it's the yes. official it's the official opinion of uh, America. Yeah, right. So um, <clears throat> you mean coastal elites, right? Coastal, coastal elites. Yeah. Um, so Gerald Jonas, a person by the name of Gerald Jonas, reviewed um, several science fiction novels. Actually, in this, uh, in, in in his, uh, it's like a compendium Sunday, Sunday column. Yeah, but I just took out the part that was. So um, you didn't write down what the other novels were. I didn't write down what the other novels were. I could find out really quickly. Um, but what did while I'm doing that? What did you think about that review? What do you remember from it? And then uh, so um, I mean the review. Uh, 
so for, I mean, first of all, I think like I don't I don't know a ton about book reviewing, and yeah. I pretty much never read book reviews. Um, although obviously, like if you're interested in something like um, the history and formation of like a literary genre like science fiction, book reviewing is important. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, uh, particularly like pre internet book reviewing is incredibly important because it's a way that information gets distributed. I think there's always a big distinction in genre reviews between ones that are written um, like in publications or in other sorts of fora that are specifically for people who are interested in the genre right? um, versus ones that appear in like mainstream outlets like the New York Times, right? So which is why like, you know, if the New York Times is going to review some science fiction and this might be a little bit different now. I mean, I would think, I bet that uh, New York 2140 got a standalone review in the New York Times. Um, but you know, these books are still relatively early in Robinson's career. And I think he's best known for the three Californias trilogy when they came out. Exactly. Yeah. Um, which, um, were, I mean, were themselves very well reviewed and thought of, um, and, and, you know, and I think if you were seeing that those three novels, the three Californias novels, um, as what Robinson's work is like, um, these would seem like a really pretty, or Red Mars would mm-hmm. seem like a pretty significant step uh, forward, a, a significant step like into the genre. Certainly it's the case that the kind of like, um, uh, the the like so-called hard science fictional elements, mm-hmm. um, so that is the, the quote unquote scientific seriousness, which the New York Times reviewer emphasizes, yeah. um, uh, stands out much more in Red Mars than it does in those earlier hmm. novels of Robinson's. Um, and so the, the, it seemed to me that like the New York Times reviewer notes at the beginning um, and praises both the kind of scientific seriousness of it, right? So that is, um, we might think of it as like plausible, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know... Uh, uh, you know, f- thus in line with like a kind of hard science fiction ethos. And then he also praises like the writing itself yeah. mm-hmm. um, and particularly like the ability to do like these kind of like uh, the natural descriptive the landscape. ability. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He, he, he's definitely on board with um, Robinson as a writer and a stylist. Yeah. Um, but then <clears throat> the whole, but the bulk of the, of the review is like sort of, setting up for the last paragraph of the review, which he says, yeah, but it's disappointing and overall or something. Right. Right. Exactly. Basically he says, um, quoting now in the end, however, not even Mr. Robinson's talents can overcome the obstacles he has set himself determined to capture all the nuances of the story. He begins the book several times, piles incident on incident, changes point of view with bewildering rapidity. Mm. I like stories that begin several times. Like I, I like those kinds of almost not quite shaggy dog stories, mm. but a story that <laughs> yeah, right. begins and then begins again from a different person's perspective or from prior to like, but what you didn't know was earlier in the day, like this happened or something right, like that. Right. Well, um, and, and since, I mean, Piles incident on incident sounds to me like a novel or a story. Yeah, particularly Incidents like a, how long other. was this book? A 600 page long <laughs> novel about like the first stages of human habitation on Mars. It seems like there probably would be a lot of incidents. Yeah, yeah. Lots of incidents happen uh, coincidentally. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's a like, I mean, it's probably one of the things that I think is funny about his complaint 
is that like so his complaint is sort of like I mean he says Robinson doesn't you know manage he sets himself too big a project is sort of what he says um which I don't know we can talk we can talk about that I mean I think like part of the beauty of these books is like exactly like their ambition they're utopian yeah (laughs) they're a pretty big project the scale right because the scale is so big um, and then, and then his problem is like this shifting viewpoint thing. And in the end, he's like, I, you know, I wish that we learned more about like some of the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's funny because his problem seems to me to be both like a kind of like a classic thing that like people who say that science fiction doesn't like do a good job with characterization mm-hmm. and, th- and therefore it's not, you know, like good literature or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, that is half of what he's saying, but the other half of what he's saying totally sounds like the critique of like the 19th century realist novel, right? The baggy monster, mm. right? You know, like, oh, it has, to, which is a the like, baggy monster. The ba- baggy monster. can't remember whose novels that's a <laughs> phrase for, but like, you know, like think like a, you know, like one of those like 800 page long Dickens novels mm-hmm. where like, you know, there are a thousand characters and so many different things happen and there are so many intersecting plot lines. And they're, like, in those novels, like, well, partly why they're like that is because, like, their ambition is about capturing, you know, this kind of, like, whole way of life, this, like, multifarious, Mm -hmm. multifarious field of life or something like that. Um, So it's funny to me that, like, his problem with this novel is, like, both the kind of problem that you have with, like, a big, big, fat, realist novel and this problem where, like, I think he kind of, in some ways, would like it to be more about, like, John Boone and and Frank Chalmers, right? Right. People who you you understand. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, like, classic heroic uh, characters who, and, like, such a big part of the novel is, or such a big sort of, um, yeah, such a big part of the novel is, getting rid of those guys right getting rid of those charismatic men that we're used to seeing from like generic science fiction the next sentence so changes point of view with bewildering rapidity i don't think it's that bewildering it's like a part ends and then we pick up a new character it seems like a pretty interesting conceit to me and yeah I got it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I have a PhD, so not to brag. Yeah, right, exactly. um, I'm used to this kind good of, at, good at points of bewildering. View. <laughs> I'm used to being bewildered. <laughs> um, uh, some of the most interesting characters like Nadia, the Siberian construction engineer, and Arkady, the Russian iconoclast, spend too much time off stage. Funny because Nadia gets two standalone sections to herself. Yeah. Arkady, I... I I want to come back to this because it is really curious to me that Arcady is the kind of more than John and more than Frank. He is the he's the sort of whatever you want to say, null set or something, the kind of like person that we have to construct only through other people's perspectives. Right. Him and Hiroko. Right. Are the people mm-hmm. that we we can only understand through other people's perspectives. We can't ever understand their own um subjectivity right their right. their way of seeing right seeing oh, that's the world. interesting yeah um he he writes uh the struggle for leadership of the colony which begins as a personality conflict between strong and well-matched individuals who ardently defend opposing positions devolves into a somewhat murky interplanetary free-for-all well interplanetary free-for-alls tend to do tend to be murky <laughs> i mean it also, it's also flattering hmm. uh to the idea that sort of the entire global earthly history of imperialism and colonialism and revolution is somehow not murky. Yeah, right. We're at this moment in 1993 where history has come to an end. Yeah. And now we know 
how everything worked, what led to what. Right, 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 right. Um, and right. so his he, this Gerald Jonas person is... Uh, who, who might be brilliant. He probably is if he's <laughs> reviewing books for the New York Times. And he's probably a lovely person. Yes. Um, well, probably not. If he's reviewing books for the New York Times, he's probably not a lovely person. Yeah. Um, his family probably likes him fine. <laughs> But anyway, I hear he and his dog get along. Yeah, right. <laughs> his third wife really almost understood him. Um, sorry, Gerald. I hope you're not alive. Listening, yeah, or okay. listening. Um, uh, yeah, he, he understands the meta narrative of history, which has come to an end, and like it's not murky at all. Um, but like, yeah, somehow the the. Conflict between strong and well-matched individuals who ardently defend right. opposing positions. You know, it's there. There are definitely conflicts between individuals in this book. For sure, that is that is not deniable, um, and uh, uh, they have their own positions, and they are ideological positions, and there is a struggle between them. But one thing that the book and the subsequent books show us is that it doesn't really matter like individuals having conflicts at the end of the day it doesn't matter so much who which individual is right or wins those conflicts because history is uh the motor of history the engine of history is social conflict are like big groups of people right right um and uh those conflicts turn on a dime uh uh by by chance, you know. Um, well, I mean, I think acts one of, acts of chance and contingency. I, one of the things that I think is interesting is actually like substantively interesting about the book is, I mean, whatever. It's an incredibly interesting book. But <laughs> one of the things that I think makes it interesting is that it it is the case actually that I think the characters are worth thinking about. Mm -hmm. And like we talked about last time, you know, there are there are many moments here you know like we, when we were talking about Anne's grief her shut-in her locked-in state of like this preemptive grief over Peter um there are many moments that in the novel that I think f actually do feel like you know they have a lot of like psych psychic weight to them mm -hmm. you know and therefore like if the if part of what you want is to like you know feel like that kind of like relation to one of the characters um i think that that's there mm -hmm. um but that but this is not a novel where what matters the most are feelings that can be located tidally in individuals mm -hmm. and so like in another in another version of this novel i think you would make like I don't, you know, Frank and John say mm -hmm. like two, you know, representatives of two opposing points of view. And then you'd be like, oh, but they have these human foibles that mean that like they don't totally live out their ideals or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, but instead, I think like as we've been like reading it and talking about it, like even Frank and John, who seem the closest to those kinds of figures and certainly like, you know, we meet them first in the, you know, in this like ultimate conflict moment, rivalry over a woman slash assassination, just like happens with all male rivalry, obviously, um, <laughs> like despite the fact that that's how we see them at first, like 
we actually see that their ideas about the world, about politics, about what should happen on Mars, about what it means for them all to live together, about what it would look like to have a future, that for both of them, like, that stuff is, like, actually constantly changing, mm, right? You yeah. know, that they – and that has to do with feelings that we might describe as personal. Mm-hmm. I mean, all that stuff is, like, deeply felt. Mm-hmm. Um uh, but at the same time, they're not solely personal, right? And, you know, in many ways, like, the material, the condition, the things that they experience, like, thinking about John, like, going around the planet and meeting all of those people, like, you know, in some ways, he's somebody who, like, doesn't have ideas of his own, and so he just, like, synthesizes ideas from other right. people, right? right. Um, but even, but Frank too, right? Like Frank also changes, you know, like when he sees like, you know, as he's drawn into these situations where he's trying to actually resolve material problems, right? And these like extraordinarily awful conditions that he sees people living in, he changes too, right? So they actually don't, they're not Mm stand-ins for political positions, you know, like, um, uh, which is not to say, like, oh, what they are as human beings, but but it is to say that, like, we see them, like, buffeted. They're mm. buffeted by all kinds of things, and they're changed by all kinds of things, and they're not static, right? Yeah. Whereas I think, like, you could easily imagine, like, a version of the novel in which they were the two opposing forces, and then they shaped right. things. Right, right, right. Ideal, ideal platonic kind of, like, positions that uh, remain, yeah, static, and then, and then fight over everything. Whereas... Yeah, they are subject to the to the conditions around them t- to the extent that, especially with Frank, he becomes he's constantly becoming unrecognizable to himself. Yeah, like at the moment that he begins to recognize himself, he like runs away from it often. So like, in terms of his relationship with Maya, he uh, moves back and forth in terms of uh, uh, regarding like what he thinks about that and how important Maya is to him, uh, and then regarding. Uh, thinking back to like when he finds his old Kindle with all that Nietzsche on it, um, and he's like, "This is all nonsense. I don't understand what any of this is." While the first sentence of that paragraph was, "It's all about will." Of, right. that, of that part was, "It's right, all about right, will. Right, it's right. a matter of will." Right. You know. Um, I was also just thinking that they that idea that like I mean I don't find the shifting points of view in here confusing, no. and I I don't think that I, I mean I think it's basically I don't think that they are confusing. But it does seem to me like, well, you know, most people who, like, write about science fiction, but I think also most science fiction fans would agree that part of what you do as a reader of science fiction is you're always trying to figure out how the world you're reading about works. And a lot of the way that you do that figuring out is in these, like, is in, like, the gaps in the text, right? Like, you don't actually, like, expect that. Even, even like, when you're reading, like, a utopia where there is, like, you know, the, the member of the utopian society who serves as your guide and explains things to you, even then there, there are, like, these gaps. There are things that aren't filled in. There are things that are, like, utterly, um, you know, incomprehensibly strange to you. And what you're doing as a reader is you're always, like, trying to put it together, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that is this is, like, a big part, I think, of how you read science fiction, and it's mm-hmm. part of the pleasure of it is that, like, you're, like, you're really, like, active in that way. And having the shift, the shifts in focalization from section to section is just another, is another opportunity to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems to me that, like, part of the point here is that, like, it's not only that you're figuring out, like, how things work in this, in this particular, like, universe the universe of red mars 
Um, but you're also having to figure things out about like how people work. Like what's the idea here about like what a person is and how a person works. Mm -hmm. And you're also being asked all the time, I think, to think about how history works, because mm -hmm. I, I think that that comes up again and again, and that you don't get like this sort of linear through line, you know, that you don't get, you know, like a continual explanation of things. Um, but instead, you know, like a chapter ends and a new one begins and you're like, you know, thrown off balance. You're like estranged again. Like that seems to me to be just like, well, that's part of how you read science fiction anyway. You're mm -hmm. like trying to figure that out. Like it makes absolute sense in a science fiction novel to think uh, Frank's perspective is not the only perspective. John's perspective is not the only perspective perspective Nadia's is not the only perspective like I might like some of those people more or agree with some of them more but it's clear that if I want to understand the whole thing if I want to understand the history and the world that I'm looking at I have to be working between those perspectives this is like opening up a lot of different avenues where we could go um one one would be one of the big gaps in the text is Arcadi Arcadi yeah doesn't have a chapter of on his own neither does Hiroko so those are two huge gaps that that as we were saying before the characters are constantly filling in because those characters are very enigmatic to the, the characters themselves but they're also you know deeply enigmatic to us because we never get to see the world through their eyes right right um uh I forgot what the other one <laughs> the other <laughs> avenue that I was going to ask you about um, which I guess, no, that one was, uh, the, the second, uh, secondly, the other sort of avenue we could pursue would be, um, the status of science fiction as realism. Um, mm. Robinson has called science fiction, like the realism of our time. Right. Um, right. and so to what extent does realism or the realist novel, in taking multiple perspectives, um, try to explain reality um, in an aesthetic way, um, and, and in regard to science fiction specifically, speculative fiction, um, look toward the future uh, and try to build a future that is built on the foundations of the conditions of the present, but that does not follow the logic linearity of, uh, of the logic that the present is currently constituted around right right well let's talk let's talk about Hiroko and Arcadi first because I it does I was thinking I don't think I'd really thought about this before like I mean the in some ways like the energy from the uh from the crucible chapter on or maybe from the 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 set part after that the Michelle part um there is a kind of um There is a way in which, like, Hiroko's absence and the question of where the, where the lost colony is um, um, is a kind of organizing one in the novel. And we end up there. And we end up, you know, right at the end with Hiroko speaking, saying, this is home. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so there's this kind of... Um, so we have, like, a trajectory toward Hiroko, toward Hiroko's project, um, and not only do not only is is she apparently making we learn at the very end making a thing that can be called home mm -hmm. on Mars, which does seem to be distinct distinctive. You know, she seems to be naming something distinctive there. Um, but also, she's the person who is actively producing 
the population of um, planet-born mm-hmm. people uh, who will be Martians, who will be Martians in a different way than the first hundred or than the, the various, like, settlers and immigrants from um, Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, so that's, one, that's one thing. Um, and then we have uh, – so, so Hiroko is both, like, seems, like, narratively incredibly central – Mm-hmm. Um, and we get some sense of her philosophy, or at least we have references to her philosophy, that idea of the greening energy. It, but it's it, true. We know very little about her at all. Yeah. She's, um, she's really defined by other people's perceptions of her, that she's young, beautiful, enigmatic, brilliant. Um, uh, and, I, I, and I wonder, too, about... Um, <clears throat> You know, I, I wonder, too, about the racial politics of this of this book, uh, where she's the she's not the only Japanese person of the... No, there are other Japanese people in the first hundred. In the first hundred, right. But um, they're... But but none of those ja- none of those Japanese people get their own chapter. It's all Russians and Americans, right? Yeah, I, th- I think so. Um, at least in the first book. Right. Um, so to what extent is kind of, you know... East Asia kind of still mysterious yeah, <laughs> place right, right. for the like 1990s uh, Kim Stanley Robinson American right. white American man writer. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and it's also like if we're trying to if we're trying to think about like it's so I was saying before that I think there's a way in which you at first think that John and Frank will sort of represent principles that they'll be stand-ins for ways of thinking. And yeah. at times that they sort of are that, like, mm-hmm. you know, John, a, a kind of version of a sort of democratic liberalism, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, Frank, a kind of like, you know, Machiavellian version of what politics is. Politics is power or play. Um, but then they don't seem to be those things. Um, and, and, and with Heroku, we kind of don't get an answer, you know, like, mm. and the thing that if she's a stand in for something, um, it's much, it's harder to understand what it is, partly because it's encoded as spiritual, um, partly because she blends together this right. like extraordinary, like extraordinary scientific yeah. ability. Right. I mean, she's like, um, you know, she, she is the genius character. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe Sax is also a genius. Yeah. Um, but she's a different kind of genius than him, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if the two, I guess the two of them, like, yeah, as soon as, soon as I start talking about this, I, you know, I think like, again, like in the sax and opposition, like Hiroko is another term in that opposition, right? Because like, um, you know, she like sax has this drive to make Mars live. Um, but she thinks there's a way that Mar that Mars will live like not on, um, uh, earth terms but mm-hmm. on its own terms mm-hmm. that there's a version of livingness that could be proper to mars mm-hmm. um uh which is yeah which is crazy and so but but hard to she's hard to put into the kind of like it, to imagine that she stands in for something i i think right yeah. unless we unless you know you want to go sort of like fully like orientalist and yeah. like sexist and feel like right. she stands for this kind of like you know fertile life principle yeah not earth mother but mars mother right right um which i i i mean yeah you i think you could go that way certainly but i think that the you know the the mixture of science and religion mm. that she represents mm-hmm. 
Um, it reminds me of this other interview that we read in Radical Philo of Robinson in Radical Philosophy, where he says, "Science is how we establish facts. Fiction is how we establish values." And that Hiroko, in a way similar to John, has a really good story about what Mars is going to be. Right. Um, and when we're and looking ahead to Green Mars, when we're and or just at the end of Red Mars, when we're introduced to this. Um, land this town that Hiroko has created it certainly seems like an ideal yeah community yeah I mean like she's on to something yeah, here right right it seems to really be working um I just <clears throat> in, in in you describing this here's a uh, I found another yeah. uh, an academic article by William J White written in 2007 um called called Structuralist Alchemy in Kim Stanley Robinson's Red Mars, where he goes through these grimace squares, these semantic rectangles, and tries to create some of his own. I haven't actually read the article, but one of the semantic rectangles he creates is consists of Hiroko I, AI, I, Hiroko, mm -hmm. uh, John Boone, Sax Russell, and Ann Claiborne. And Hiroko and Anne are both uh, underneath them. Both have the areophany, right. which is this kind of epiphany, but Martian or something, right? right. right? Um, the kind of truly becoming Martian. What what it would be to be Martian? Underneath Hiroko, it says sanguine. So um, she has a much more sanguine. Uh, right, calling back to Michelle's uh, right oppositions. His oppositions, and I think. What would she be like? Phlegmatic or something, or uh, melancholic? I guess. Right, right. She would be melancholic. Sax under Sax is terraforming, and under John Boone is the Martian syncretism. Um, uh, and we, I, I would not even think about trying to describe <laughs> this or explain this uh, gr uh, this Grimas square to our listeners. This gr this Grimasian semantic rectangle. Um, because I, don't, I haven't read the article and I don't know what any of it means, but it does seem that those characters, it's an interesting way to put those, those characters together. Right, into, right, right. And I do think that, like, um, in, in Green Mars and going forward, and we do learn more about Hiroko, and we do also come to see her as somebody who is also interested in, like, a sort of image of herself as something, right? You know, oh, yeah. that rather than just like being Mars mother, she is somebody who has maybe actually been quite active in thinking about like, that's a position that I think that we need a yeah. kind of, sort of a constructed position. And in that she comes out like, um, looking much more like she sort of fits in with John. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, well, actually quite a lot with John, right? Yeah. And, as know, the John, charismatic first man on Mars. Right. You know, um, and since, you know, and since it's through John, that John is the person whose perspective that we, from whose perspective we learn that Hiroko has been, um, producing children, mm -hmm. um, through genetic mixing. Right. right? right. So right. like we do have them as sort of like, you know, mama and papa in, in in this kind of way i think that the, you know ultimately i think the novel is always like undoing those kind of like those oedipal oppositions yeah. um yeah. you know to some extent the gen the gendering is also undone um yeah well, i think that like in terms of the the one of the big as i've said already one of the big operations of the novel is getting rid of john frank and arcade arcadi i always say arcadi or arcadi whatever his name is bogdanov that guy that guy 
Um, insofar as one of the big operations is getting rid of that, you know, John is, uh, John and Frank are like purely American, very, very much so. Like John is the cowboy and Frank is kind of the operator or something like the, the as you say, Machiavellian, he almost represents a kind of European view of, of power as well. Mm. Of, 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 I mean, Chalmers is basically chambers. He's, he's operating in the chambers of power. Right, right. John Boone is Daniel Boone. He's John Wayne. He's... He's this kind of very charismatic, uh, outgoing, physical person. Right. Um, Arkady represents just Marxism, just <laughs> Russia, just the Soviet Union, you know. Although he's not, I mean, he's not really like a, he, he's not a straight up Marxist. No. Well, or he, certainly Soviet style He's He's a more anarchist, I suppose. I mean, as far as like Marxism goes, he's, he's, I mean, we could imagine, he's probably pretty influenced by like, I can't. I can't think of the name. I'm blanking on the names of the the more the anarchists. Anarchists. Or, yeah, the anarchists. <laughs> um, I mean, I think he's like he. Yeah, right. I mean, he because he is. Um, I mean, I think he's a he's a mix of things. I mean, I think this is partly why we why he is somebody who we probably know him best through Nadia, right? Um, you know. Uh, through her like but you know he is like charismatic and in some ways he's idealistic although he's also like you know it turns out quite practical given that like he is you know largely responsible for like um uh, Phobos. Yeah, well, and putting <laughs> and putting caches of arms around right, Mars, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. so that like you know the the possibility once the revolution starts happening, the possibility of ongoing resistance is partly enabled, first of all, by what he inspires. Although then, as we're like traveling around in that chapter, we learn that like people are. It's not only Arkady who's yeah. like an inspirational figure. They're like all of these people. People are fighting under all kinds of banners that yeah. may or may not come together. I think this is the like. Um, to go back to that New York Times review, that feeling that like, oh, and then and then it's confusing what happens. There are all, all these it's a free for all. Like, um I don't know, that to me it seems like so important, right? And it's not about it doesn't seem to me at all about saying that like there's no purpose or intent or a gentle drive. It's about saying that like when you're in in the moment of revolutionary change, like um in the moment of huge historical transformation multiple things are happening at the same time. Um, and it's kind of a moment in which, like, y you know, there there isn't the possibility of, like, tidy, tidy organization. Right. Um, partly because, you know, everybody is, like, just trying to survive. Um, and partly because, like, you know, the, the and, and that means that, like, the first thing that people are dealing with are a set of, like, the material conditions that will let them survive and go on. Mm -hmm. um, and the, like, ideas, which, you know, may serve as, like, inspiration or force in some ways are, like, have to be secondary, right, mm -hmm. um, in order for people to keep living. But to me, that, like, the chaoticness is part of the way in which the book is always, like, giving you these – giving you things to think about, right? Giving you the idea of, like, is this person an archetype or what is this position that they represent? Um, letting you see that position as, like, far more complicated and far more bound up mm -hmm. with um, circumstance mm -hmm. than you might have thought, right? Um, but not in a way that then dismisses. So I feel like Arkady is never um, – it would be easy to think of him as this kind of idealist but he's not dismissed on those grounds, right? And in fact, like, his influence, like, yeah. his ability to say, like, 
you know, we we want a new world. We can we can be new, but new has to include beauty as well as equality. Well, yeah, right? and he I I could be wrong, but he's also the the one who says he, he, who's not a pure idealist. He is a very much a materialist because he says we can do all this, but we need an accurate analysis of the present moment right. in order to act uh, correctly to take you know correct intentional action moving forward. Um, it's about being able to see the world accurately first before you move on. And he feels that he does have an accurate understanding of right. how the world works. Right. right. Um, and we also, we, we kind of get, you know, like when we get to um, like, um, if that, that vision of like where of, you know, Hiroko's world at the end is appealing, it's partly appealing because it, it's beautiful, mm -hmm. right? I mean, she's made something that's beautiful, or they've all together made something that's beautiful. Harmonious. This dome, the trees, yeah. right? You know, um, like this, the sense of like this very pleasing um, place that could be home, right? And that does call back to Arkady early on mm -hmm. when he sees underhill that nadia is laboring mm -hmm. to build and like make right and he's like well why is this so ugly right yeah right right <laughs> you know because those things i mean and again that's the sort of like the material and the ideal there are not separate right mm -hmm. but they actually like um work together right they co-produce each other and mm -hmm. um, you know you shouldn't think like i i just we just need to survive you also need to think we want to survive in a way that lets us live right Let's us thrive. Yes, live. Uh, that would be nice. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> must be nice. Uh, um, to to what extent? Um, if and now, I don't know if this is a position that Robinson had in the early '90s, or if he's developed over the last 25 years that science fiction is the realism of our time. But uh, <clears throat> New York 2140, his most recent novel, is certainly, I would say, a realist novel uh having only read the first 25 pages of it yeah i started reading it and i had to put it down because it was too good uh, and i don't have the time or energy to devote to reading it and i don't think i can read two kim stanley robinson novels at the same time and do justice to both of them equally so i'm going to put that down until we get through with this podcast till we get through with this podcast right something right. to get through um <laughs> Till we enjoy ourselves till every we, step of the way. Yeah, till we suck the marrow from uh, these these novels uh, at, uh, completely. I would say the New York twenty one forty is for sure a realist novel. Uh, to what extent is Red Mars a realist novel in the same in the same or a different um, uh, register as either New York twenty one forty or a Charles Dickens or a Leo Tolstoy oh, novel? Right, right. Well, I mean, so, okay, so first of all, I think those are, I, I can't probably do justice to that question. Oh, come on. Uh, but I, I mean, I have some thoughts, and one of my thoughts is um, when uh, Robinson's novel uh, Aurora came out. Now, Aurora, is Aurora a continuate, is it con contain these characters? Because he has multiple universes that he works within right like yeah so these these novels um the martians which are sh short stories right. um uh there's a book called Ant antarctica antarctica um then uh 2312 okay. 2312 actually um which is a really like um 
That's a really lovely. Whatever, all these books are really good. I love twenty three twelve though. Um, I'm actually thinking about teaching it next winter. But oh, cool. um, oh, uh, spoiler alert or preview for uh, University of Chicago students. Yeah, <laughs> Hillary will be teaching twenty three twelve. He also maybe. says that. Robinson is that's his favorite novel of the ones that he's written. Yeah, I was kind of surpri- I was surprised by that. According it, to Radical Philosophy, it has like interview. a very, um, it has a sort of, uh, it has like a playfulness that is not always his thing um, to it. Um, so, but that's in the same universe. It follows actually fairly closely on the end of the Mars trilogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Galileo's Dream, which is about Galileo, um, but in that novel, Galileo comes in contact with a far future uh, society. Uh, I did not, totally did not pick, and th- that is also an awesome novel. Okay. Uh, it feels like that, let me cut you off really yeah, quick and ask you a question. Yeah. Is it a time travel situation? Because that seems like outside mm-hmm. of of Robinson's bailiwick. Like that seemed like a time travel thing seems like something he would not be into. It is, it is not exactly a time travel situation. Um, uh, is it like, um, does it sort of play around with like, you know, sort of hard science fictional convention? Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, and actually when I read it, I did not notice at all that it was in the same universe as the Mars novels because I was just, you know, whatever too dumb to have noticed that you were enjoying it Uh, but my my sister pointed out that in that novel the far future society i believe pauline originally john boone's ai Uh shows up there and pauline also shows up in 2312 Mm -hmm. i believe and maybe is also in antarctica too Uh, so anyway that, that that's kind of interesting um so what was the question? Oh, I know. So when Aurora, when Aurora came out, so Aurora, which is also another, I mean, whatever, all of his novels are really good, except for Shaman, which I did not like. Oh. Um, but uh, <laughs> but Aurora is a um, like mid far future. Um, takes place on an arc ship, right? People traveling to find another habitable planet. Um, uh, and I, I guess I won't spoil what happens in that novel, but reviews of that novel talked about it. And I think this is a way that like Robinson gets talked about a lot, um, particularly in mainstream kind of book reviewing, um, talked about its realism. Um, and, and I take it when, when reviewers say things like that about Robinson, kind of like that New York times review that we just read, they mean one, uh, scientific plausibility, Right what they take mm-hmm. to be a kind of scientific plausibility that counts as realism. So that's like when you like, you know, whatever, like you do or don't think the possibility of like a car jumping over the grand Canyon is like realistic when you're watching an action movie. Right. Or, or evil can or actually jumping a car. Over realistic. The grand Canyon. Uh, so, uh, so I think that often, um, but also realism can often be used. And I, I thought about this when I was reading reviews of Aurora, when it came out, it can be often used to suggest something like, oh, uh, this author gets what the limits are on what we can do. Ah. And their realism is often posed implicitly to utopianism. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I, I, I think like the reason that I noticed this in reviews of Aurora, um, was partly because reviewers suggested, oh, here's a novel in which Robinson, this kind of utopian thinker of the Mars novels, is showing 
a kind of realist a realist critique mm. of utopia right um so it must end sadly uh, it, it, I mean, it ends on Earth, uh-huh. so maybe we can, you know, maybe uh-huh. that's enough to say, like, uh-huh. uh, you know, um, and I, I don't know, I, I thought that that was, like, a really wrong take, so I was kind of, like, right. on the novel, um, which I didn't think, actually, was anti-utopian, and, the, and that use of realism or being realistic really bothers me, and the other place where I felt, like, kind of concurrently with thinking about, um, uh, that in Aurora, where I felt like I heard that a lot, um, was during our most recent presidential election in the Democratic primaries, mm-hmm. when one part of the language about like uh, the problem with Bernie Sanders, and, and I say yeah. this not as a 100% endorsement of Bernie Sanders, who is not my favorite socialist because he's not really a socialist, right. but you know what I mean. Uh, the problem with him was not realistic, right? right? Ponies, um, where everyone's going to get a everyone's going to get a, a pony, ice and cream like cone or something. you know, and like I mean, and this I realize sounds like a detour, but I actually think this has something to do with science fiction. Um, yeah, and you know, uh, well, science fiction and Marxism or anti-capitalism are deeply intertwined. Yes. Anyway, yes. go ahead. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, so so you know, and that use of realism, right, in which there is a kind of like. This is a. This is about like these Practical. are the limits, yeah. right? Um, practicality and that use of realism. I think it's unspoken. You know, it's unspoken partner is the idea that the only way that we have to live together is capitalism, mm-hmm. right? That we already live in the that, real way that we will live, and the right? best of all possible worlds, and, and that it is for the best. And what we have to do is just keep tinkering with it until yeah. it, like you know, like uh, I don't know, has equal representation for everyone on Netflix or whatever mm-hmm. it is, right? <laughs> yeah. Um. So. So like. You know, and if we th- if we go back to 19th century realism, one version of what 19th century realism is is it tells you, hey guys, you know, like here's the limit. Reportage it's called it's called capitalism, yeah, right? Right. Um, but of course, there are other ways to think about what 19th century realism does, and there are ways to think about how it um, allows the possibility of seeing. Um, you know, residual and emergent historical currents or feelings um, in a way that one does not see them in daily life, right? That, you know, so, so I think often, um, so, so often the sort of like critique of something of science fiction that says it's not realistic, um, I think is about a kind of like assertion of a sort of default idea about what must be real, Mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, what's just rational, what's just real, the way things must be. Well, this is what human nature is, blah, 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 right? Um, on the other hand, yeah. like, I think that the realism of something like science fiction um, is exactly like when I was saying earlier, like, part of what you do as a reader of science fiction is you're you're trying to fill things in, right? The whole picture isn't there, and you're trying to see the whole picture, right? And as you're doing that, like as you're like looking quite intently at this thing that is unfamiliar to it and trying to make sense of it, you have to do that in comparison to something, mm-hmm. right? You have to do that in comparison to your own world and your own experience of living. Um, and I think, you know, along with other people who are smarter than me who write about science fiction, I think that what that does is it also induces in you the possibility of noticing something about how it is that you live that you don't notice, Right. right? Um, and in particular, you know, the way in which, like, we live in a way that is um, kind of extraordinarily, like, numbed 
to our to the historicity of our circumstances. That mm -hmm. is, we take it that the way that we're living now is the only possible way to live, mm -hmm. right? So one version of saying this about science fiction is to say it can help us imagine something different, right? Which I think is an, is an important thing to think, right? Um, it can help us imagine, and, and, and even more importantly, it can help us imagine difference, which I think is actually quite difficult to get at, right? We, we live in a kind of like, you know, routine of the same. And, and we live in a routine of the same because like most people's lives are extremely difficult and like getting through day-to-day -day stuff is extremely difficult, right? So being given the possibility of thinking, but things could be different, um, and and moreover, things could be different in concrete ways. That that's a thing that science fiction can offer. Mm -hmm. um, the version of it that I was trying to point to is also uh, you think things could be different because you begin to recognize or see something about the way things work around you that's actually like hard to see in your mm -hmm. daily life. Partly because you know, your daily life is formed around the assumption that you have to go to work, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, you know, and that to me, like, well, that seems to me like worthy of the name of, re you want, a, re you want a, a realist perspective on the world? Well, a realist perspective on the world is one that says that, like, you know, our sort of siloing off from each other um, is not, in it's fact, artificial. the way things are, right? Yeah. But the things could be different, yeah. right? You know, so, like, it, so in that way, like, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I think that, like, Thinking about how history happens in Red Mars, I think, allows you to think something about how history has and hasn't happened for us. And could right? potentially and unfold could happen, in the future. Right? Yeah. Um, or it could be reconfigured. Like, all it takes, so much of it, of, I mean, what we see today, too, in terms of all the movements that are going on today is a reconfiguration of history, of just looking at historical events from a different perspective and realizing that the story that we've been told in grade school and high school and college is not reality, it's just another story. And if we can tell different stories about the past, we can imagine different ways that the future could unfold. Right, right. And I think something this novel emphasizes so strongly is that those differences will, ha will have to be brought about, like, not, first of all, by human collective action, right? right? Um, by a recognition of the role that, like, you know, chance mm -hmm. and accident play. Yeah. Um, but also, like, deeply, you know, entwined with, like, what we think of as, like, the environment or the mm -hmm. natural world, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that, like, it's, like, just, it's not, there's, like, nothing to me that's, like, um, in the, in the, in the chapter when the, you know, the elevator is falling, the elevator tether is wrapping around Mars, um, uh, you know, the, the raging, like, floodwaters are coming. Nadia is trying to direct the robots to contain it. <laughs> right. Like, you have this, it's impossible to be able to pull out in some kind of tidy way, like, what's natural slash environmental yeah. there versus what is human, right? The one I was thinking of, which I keep coming back to in my mind, uh, is the Nemesis asteroid, which no one was, no one, none of the first hundred were involved in. It was a, you know, a, a, a separate rogue, rogue group. But that one um, points up the, the, a lot of, uh, a lot of what's uh, – it points up that there's a tension between um, chance and intentionality because launching the nemesis asteroid at Earth was one group's intention, 
but it wasn't the intention of anybody of, of other groups. Right, right. It happened by chance from the perspective of those other groups. It's like, oh, this other group acted intentionally in a purely contingent way that we could never have predicted. Um, and then the fact that Earth was able to destroy the Nemesis asteroid before it got to Earth was another uh, event of contingency that, uh, or, or chance that, that was not predictable. Um, and all of those, those things are wrapped up in, in, in both in, in nature and science and um, intentionality and politics and all of that yeah, stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just as you were talking, I mean, the, the realist novel um, and, and maybe the novel in, well, I don't know if the novel in general, but it just reminded me of, of the things that some of the stuff that I love so much mm-hmm. about studying film and the Frankfurt School especially is that um, especially, I mean, realism is just a really, really difficult word to keep out of the mouths of undergraduates uh-uh. <laughs> uh, when they're talking about movies and critiquing movies because it just wasn't realistic. And that, right, right. that word just doesn't mean anything uh, because it means whatever the person who's saying it wants it to mean. Um, but one of the things that um, is so tempting to, one of the reasons it's so tempting to use that word when you're talking about movies is that movies are photographic, are based on photographic indexicality right, like you point right. a camera at the world and you get an image of the world um so it's real it's real right or it's based in reality or it looks real at least and then you say well you know reality isn't black and white and it doesn't have a frame around it and it has different aspect it doesn't have an aspect ratio uh-huh. and, uh <laughs> it has different it doesn't have different i'm gonna wait till the sirens go away it's nothing to worry about Everything's fine. But uh, one of the things that, but it, but it's still, um, especially like sort of narrative films are based in realist novel, the realist novel, the tradition of the realist novel. Right, right. Um, but of course they have a ton of uh, excess around that. They don't simply tell stories, they show you images. So this quote that, um, this line that Walter Benjamin uh, has in a couple of different places. Uh, he says, our bars and city streets, our offices and furnished rooms, our railroad stations and our factories seemed to close relentlessly around us. Then came film and exploded this prison world with the dynamite of the split second so that now we can set off calmly on journeys of adventure among its far front, among its far flung ruins. Hmm. So, um, you know, movies, moving images are to me like, a purely science fictional event in mm-hmm. a way mm-hmm. like you take a still image and you make it move and, right right uh you you know have a, a a dream projected on a wall that multiple people can participate in at the same time right right um and so that kind of that that kind of both realist and utopian dimension of the cinema is science fictional and Science fiction is, in a certain way, like deeply cinematic as well. Yeah, yeah. What, um, that just because made... it fulfills promises of the novel that mm. that mere literature can't <laughs> fulfill. Somehow, I don't want to. You know, I'm not downplaying literature, but it's kind of. A, yeah. I don't really mean what I'm saying, but. Uh, that just made me think that, tw- like, 
in one of the last sections of Red Mars, we get the image of the light leaking out, right? Which made me think of like a camera with yeah. a light leak in it that that leaves, you know, like uh, streaks on the negative, right? These books are so visual and it just is mind-boggling that they haven't been successfully they haven't been made into any kind of movie or television show but it also is like a relief because they'll yeah. probably be bad like we don't have a whatever a stanley kubrick or a andre tarkovsky to like make these books into uh, yeah right gorgeous right. uh images you know right right um, we'd probably get it some kind of horrible steven spielberg or james cameron version of it if we got any at all yeah, I mean, I, yeah, it would be hard for me to want to see, yeah. I mean, although most books that I love, I, you know, like, don't really want to see no. movies of, no. like, you know, no. those things, I think. The culture industry is bad. Yeah. Um, well, should we, <laughs> with that, should we look ahead to Green Mars? Oh, yeah. Is there anything left on the table? Um, we still only have two reviews um, on our iTunes oh. review. One is, uh, says, insightful and ranging commentary, exclamation point. That's by my friend who writes under the name Barry Leavitt. Uh, that's very nice of your friend. Uh, another one says, a must listen for sci-fi fans by Revatron. Thanks, Revatron. And he says, or she, they say, they. this podcast is phenomenal. In addition to bringing the book back to life for longtime fans, the brilliant hosts enrich the text <laughs> with humor, context, and truly deep insight. I can't recommend it highly enough. <laughs> Woohoo! So we're 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 winning. Uh, you know, it's really easy to talk about these books. Yeah. Why was that New York Times reviewer confused? confused by it it was like it was the 90s he the soviet union had just collapsed he didn't know so much to talk about um i could ask you uh how many um downloads you think we've received from east haddam connecticut uh do you know somebody who lives in east haddam connecticut i don't know anybody but it's not new haven none none from new haven so no one at Yale is listening to this. I'm completely not surprised by that. But 22 downloads from East Haddam, Connecticut. Right. That's nice. Um, Cambridge, Massachusetts, plus Somerville, Massachusetts, three. Oh. So Harvard, screw you too. <laughs> um, uh, we have, but this is a global. This this podcast has global reach, Hillary. Global Are you reach? aware of this? Uh, I have not been looking at the stats. We have downloads from Argentina, oh, England, lots from England. These are all friends of yours. Paris, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Brittany, Ooh. which is in France. Yes. Nice. Hopefully, hopefully these are all people tuning in to hear us mocking Michelle. Oh yeah, and then they were like, "I'm never listening to another ask." Uh, well, there's only one from episode. Paris. Yeah, exactly. so you probably listened to that one episode, and then <laughs> uh, Bangkok, Tokyo, uh, and a couple from uh, Australia. All right. So we have a we have a global audience. That's cool. One person downloaded it from Perth, and then one other person from two two downloads from Roville, Victoria, in. Australia. Uh, that's awesome. It's a really long way away from yeah. where we are. Hello, uh, greetings. <laughs> Good day. Oh, oh my God. Sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. You know, I feel like so. Some goals for us uh-huh. 
Let's write these down. Let's let's make some goals. I think some goals are we should really have some guests on the show. I know. Even we... though I really just enjoy talking to you, that's really fun. Oh, stop But it. I don't want uh, our listeners to get bored. Yeah. Um, we should definitely see if we can find somebody who would want to come on and talk about, like, um, planetary science um, or other kinds of science in the novels. I think that would be cool. And we are definitely not equipped to talk about that. Right. Um, or even like engineering. I mean, there's so much engineering yeah. stuff like, uh, you know, um, and uh, as uh, Robinson said in that interview in radical philosophy lots of scientists actually know way more about the humanities than humanists it's know true. about the sciences i worry sometimes that we're just like proving that with every episode of this podcast um uh i try but... not to worry about <laughs> most things these days so those are things i think we should have well those hey are... if you're a listener out there and you're an engineer or you know an engineer or well, you planetary want, science. Want to talk about planetary science or any kind of science and you've read the books or if you haven't read the books if you haven't read the books and you're listening to this, what is wrong with you? I mean, you should read them. You should read them. Um, but uh, I imagine that there are some scientists out there who have read these books. Oh, yeah. I would think so. And we could figure out a way. I, there are devices and um, programs and softwares that uh, we could pipe you in from uh, perhaps Perth, Australia. Or, or Nice, France. Right. Or if you're in the Chicago land area. Yes. The bulk of our downloads, not surprisingly, come from the Chicago land area. Yeah. And they're mostly just you and me. Yeah, probably. I'm going to download, our, let me download that our, episode again. Yeah, our friends. Um, so, yeah, please, uh, you know, get in touch with get us. Get in touch with us. Uh, come on the show. We can probably also reach out to various uh, professors and such that we might uh, I guess. cross wow. paths with in yeah. our uh, professional mm. lives as uh, academic type peoples. Quasi, quasi academic types. You're, you're more than a quasi. I'm, I'm, I'm on the quasi side. We have four <laughs> downloads from Louisville, Kentucky. I know who that is. Memphis for Lindale, Texas, 11. That's yeah. in East Texas. I don't know who that is. Uh, me I know neither. people in West Texas, not East Texas. Uh, I will just say, I mean, you know, this range is cool, but I notice sometimes in the um, the i the iPhoto the iPhoto app on my phone yeah. that you know, like it it sometimes tells me that my photos are from places that they aren't from, right? Like locations in China, which I would like to have been accurate. to, but yeah. I've never been to. Right. So I'm just saying, who knows. Well, I mean, like Lindale, it might be Lindale, Texas. It might just be somebody from Tyler, Texas, but but Lin it comes up as Lindale, you know. <laughs> but it might just be another person from like Chicago, Illinois, whose phone is just thinks they're in Texas. So you think everyone listening is from Chicago? Chicago. Well, one guy who emailed us named Brian is definitely from New York. I think it was Ryan. It could have been Ryan. <laughs> That's true. It's That's Ryan. True. That's true. His email was really nice, uh, which I think we talked about that before. He just started a Red Mars to read Red Mars for a book club, and happened upon our podcast. That's cool. Um, so yeah. So anyway, uh, be a scientist. Come on our show. Talk about science with us. We're dumb. We don't know. I'll speak for myself. I'm a big dumbo about science. We can learn. <laughs> If slowly, there's one thing we've proven, slowly, it's that we can learn. But we can learn. Um, uh, yeah, we're going to have guests. Okay, so goal number one is guests. Guests. I think that's a big goal. Goal number two. Uh, goal number two is just, I mean, keep reading. <laughs> keep on trucking. Come on, guys. Keep reading. Keep reading. 
Uh, uh, and that's not too hard because reading is fundamental. And uh, Green Mars is really, really good. Um, let's set up Green Mars a little bit uh, right before we sign off. So so one thing I wanted to say, just yeah. to go back to something I think we talked about really early on, um, which is the idea that like science fiction, one of the things that science fiction does is to like estrange you. Like, yes. It estranges you both from what, you know, the moments of estrangement and what you're reading affect to estrange you from the circumstances of your own lives. But... I found the transition to Green Mars super estranging because mm. I had completely forgotten how where you get focalized mm-hmm. first. Um, we can say it. And, well, the first person is one of the young generation mm-hmm. um, and also is a child. Yes. Um, and, you know, note his age is given in Mars years. Uh-huh. So he's not actually as young as you may think he is okay. at first because, remember, Mars years are almost two Earth years. Two right? Earth years. Um, but that, like the beginning, as soon as I started reading it, I remembered, Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, right. And I remembered my experience of reading it the first time when I felt so annoyed that suddenly I was going to have to deal with With like a child. Oh, well, first of all, like not one of the first hundred, because like, I still care about them and I want to know what happens to them. And like, I am still like, you know, all once again, like kind of mad that Arcadi is dead. Yeah. Um, cause I wish he was there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but of course, like, you know, I expected to pick it up and like, I would be with one of the first hundred right. and like, you know, be in that comfortable place. And it is so uncomfortable, not only because he's a child, which I think is kind of a, like, that's kind of brilliant, mm-hmm. you know, like, yeah. because we have a sort of double estrangement there, but also like, he's not one of the people we want to hang out with right. and his perspective is so different. Yeah. Um, and the next, he's an alien, he's an alien and the next, he's an alien. I mean, and he's post-human. This is something we definitely have to talk about. I think I, I, yeah, I, you know, like he's incredibly interested, like the representation of like how his mind works and how his body works is wild. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they Uh, also, that new generation, like they don't really like the first 100. Right. And you see them through the eyes of the children. And that is incredibly estranging it's because you've estranging. kind of come to identify with them in one way or another. And yeah. like here they are just like a bunch of weird old people. Well, it does like there's a moment in the in this opening chapter, part one, called the called Aereo Formation, which basically means becoming a Martian, essentially. Right. Yeah. Um, where Nergal, Who's the, the the name of this child uh, child of Mars character? I think Nergal. And Nergal is a name for Mars. Is a name right? for Mars. Many of the many of the children are named like one guy's Kasai, right? That's a name for Mars as well. But anyway, um, Nergal, we see him at school, and of course his teachers are the first one hundred, and so we see these teachers through the eyes of their students which as a teacher is extremely disturbing to me (laughs) because when I think about what I must look like in front of a room full of 18 to 22 year olds, it's profoundly disturbing and alienating. And um, I know that uh, they will, they are not understanding anything that I'm saying at all, not because they are stupid, but because we have fundamentally different uh, experiences of the universe <laughs> and uh, i could never possibly uh, adequately explain my vision of uh, peace love and understanding to them uh, uh, in a way that would be meaningful or at least even worth listening to i mean not to sell 
uh, oversell generational differences. But it is also true. It is <laughs> Was also I doing that. <laughs> it is also true that like on Mars, like they're born into a on a different planet, yeah. into it into an entirely different world. Yeah, it's one thing for me to complain about my students and saying to say that it's like they're from a different planet, but here they're literally from a different planet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that the beginning of it plays with that. And then in the second section, we get another focalization that is a surprising one. Um, so that I think is both like, it's weird. Like at first that I think that makes you feel uncomfortable, but also that's awesome because yeah. like suddenly, you know, you're having you're, to work, you're having to work, you're seeing Mars in a really different way. And that kind of like, once you've developed the relationship with some of those characters from the first hundred, you not only feel like you know what they are going to think about things or do, but you have a kind of trust of them that leads you to like see through their eyes in more sort of credulous ways. Mm -hmm. Right. And here you're like pulled back again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but also I think I, green Mars just begins in like a very exciting way. I mean, things are like moving quickly, yeah. super quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and I mean, we just have so much to look forward to with this because now like Mars has a sea, has a giant ocean. Oh, it's amazing. It. It's so amazing. Um, and yeah, we're going to get uh, involved in some new characters, some old characters. Uh, and it's just going to be great. Um, I don't know what else to say. Are we done? Uh, we're probably done, but I, I mean, I hope people are going to keep reading because I mean... I mean, I guess if Why you like, you? I guess if you read through Red Mars and you're like, yeah, I don't really like that book, maybe you wouldn't want to read another one. But maybe you'll be converted by reading the second book. Hey, you know, get the second book, read the first chapter, and like, you know, give it a shot. <laughs> Just give it a shot. Just try it. Try We're it doing out. this for you. <laughs> um, you know. Anyway, um, so this was fun. So next week we will. Um, uh, in our irregularly scheduled broadcast um, podcast, we will be um, starting Aerial Formation. Aerial Formation, part one of Green Mars. Of Green Mars. And until that time, keep reaching for the <laughs> margins. <laughs> Bye. <What>? Bye. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,